Hi, everyone. I'm Craig Pierner, leader of the advisory board's talent development team. And I'm back as your host of this radio advisory mini-series on leadership, where we engage in leadership education and dialogue. We continue our focus on the leadership attributes and behaviors most critical during COVID-19. Our last episode focused on navigating uncertainty. Today, we turn our attention to emotional resilience. If there's one thing that frequent travels have taught me, it's how much we can learn from other cultures. With apologies in advance for my poor pronunciation, the Danes have Hugay, that sense of coziness that has spurred me to purchase expensive candles and fancy blankets. The Swedes have Fika, this delightful habit of pausing for afternoon coffee and cake that I have yet to convince my advisory board bosses to adopt. And the Finns, they have Sisu. Like all of these mysterious lifestyle words, Sisu has no literal English equivalent, but it's described as a state in which one exhibits a deeply ingrained perseverance and tenacity in the face of adversity. Grit. The kind of hardiness I suppose you need to survive a Finnish winter. Sisu is part of the Finnish soul, essential to the national character. Healthcare professionals face a unique set of stressors. Healthcare places a premium on clinical and technical responsibilities. Patients expect care that is highly precise and safe. And then simultaneously, healthcare places a premium on interpersonal engagement. Patients also expect care that is people focused. And this core tension of the healthcare job be smart and also have heart is exacerbated by another set of stressors, like life-or-death consequences, emotionally charged participants, ethical dilemmas, physically dependent charges, and expectation of perfection. And now, a pandemic, with its attendant concerns around personal and familial safety, equipment and budget scarcity, and community health. All of this got me thinking. How might resilience be as integral to the soul of healthcare leaders as Sisu is to the Finns. For some leadership education and dialogue on this subject, I'm going to give my colleague, Dr. Bill Lina, a call today. Dr. Lina is an advisory board leadership development expert. He's a physician board certified in family medicine who practiced and held physician leadership positions in Florida and North Carolina. He worked with payer organizations, and then he joined the advisory board, where for the past 15 years, he's worked with leadership teams with a particular focus on engaging clinicians around data and performance improvement. Bill is a former Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal, and he also founded and supports a primary care clinic in Haiti with his wife, Mintu. I'll be focusing my conversation with Bill today on stress. Hey, Bill, it's great to have you on the program. Hi, Craig. It's good to be here. How's it going with quarantine and everything? Oh, uh, I'm lucky. I'm here in Florida, and the weather's been fantastic. Uh, (laughs) But it's a challenge, just like it is for everybody. But I I still have to admit, I feel pretty blessed. All right. Well, we're recording while it's absolutely pouring outside in Chicago. So count me jealous of your Florida sunshine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Bill, in your role... As a leader development consultant, you spend a lot of time on the front lines working with clinician leaders. 
And so on this topic of resilience today, if we think about part of resilience as being sheer grit, get up, go to work, push through trying circumstances to deliver results, it seems to me that our healthcare workforce has displayed that in spades in recent weeks. It's really inspiring. It is, Craig. From the blinking lights in New York City and the rainbows and windows, they're so well-deserved. Um, you know, when you see people clapping as healthcare workers change their shifts, uh, it, it's a proud moment at many different levels. Well-deserved. But what concerns me is more from a resilience perspective. It's, it's not a failure to perform, go and get the job done. It's the stressful conditions in which the job is done and how COVID has exacerbated that. That's a really useful distinction, this difference between getting the job done and how we're getting it done. So let's focus more on that stress then, Bill. What do you see causing healthcare leaders the most stress during COVID-19? Well, Craig, the stress levels are through the roof. Certainly, there's stress over resources. For example, equipment is probably most apparent because that's a matter of stress around physical safety. But there's also heightened emotional and intellectual stress. Bill, we're hearing a lot on the news about the personal protective equipment shortages and indeed the stress that's associated with that. But I feel like we hear less about the emotional and intellectual stress that you just mentioned. Tell me more about that. Well, first, emotionally, I mean, we're discouraged from hugs and high fives. And, and granted, healthcare is pretty professional. But in healthcare, emotionally, we need to read people's faces. And when they're wearing masks, you can't see their expressions. When they have face shields on, there is an emotional distancing that, that um, is painful. And, and, and when you think about that, it fuels isolation. And then second, intellectually, you know, there's stress around how to characterize, diagnose, and treat this complex and possibly adapting virus. I mean, I've had doctors tell me that they feel powerless and intellectually inadequate. They're grasping for answers that we just don't have yet. Bill, you have just said a couple of really sobering things. So the first is this idea that we might actually be physically together in a care environment and yet still emotionally distant. And then this idea that a doctor feels intellectually inadequate right now. Uh, you're a doctor. You've had a long career in healthcare. Does the physical and in particular the emotional and intellectual stress of this moment evoke any specific experiences from your career? I started practicing in the 80s, and while I was trained on how to take care of hypertension and diabetes, we had this new disease called AIDS. I mean, it wasn't about being HIV positive. People were coming in sick with skin cancer and pneumonias that we just couldn't figure out or treat successfully. And I remember the emotional aspect of my nurse and I when we had our first outpatient AIDS patient come to, to uh, be seen by us. And uh, it was stressful. And uh, neither of us knew how we were going to react to this patient. 
And uh, fortunately, uh, after he left, my nurse and I kind of debriefed and realized he was a nice guy. It was kind of easy to take care of him in that sense of caring for him as a person. And I remember at that time, too, the hospitalized AIDS patient, the signs on the door, the quarantine, the face masks, the gowns, the shields. I mean, it was fearful for me to go in the room, let alone everybody else who was looking at me as the clinical leader, perhaps, to set the tone. So um, a lot of emotional issues and a lot of uh, unknown intellectually um, created a lot of stress. Bill, you're really bringing um, to light in a human way the images uh, that I've seen on various documentaries about the height of the AIDS epidemic. And it sounds so hard. So if I may ask you, what got you through it? Well, when your emotions are high and, and you're feeling fear or inadequacy, I found that by reflecting on purpose is what helped me. It was an anchor that I had chosen to become a physician because I wanted to care for patients. And once I, I guess, focused on that, it gave me solid ground mm -hmm. to stand on. And did you find that you were fairly um, readily able to focus on purpose um, when dealing with those stressors, or did you have to dig pretty deep to get there? Well, I, I think it took time. Initially, you're going alone, and you fail when you're going alone, but you don't always ask for help in healthcare of your peers. And I think I found over time, as you began to discuss with other clinicians and with other folks, that digging deep was really collaborative. Well, Bill, I can imagine that the survivors of that crisis and, and those who didn't survive uh, are so grateful for the compassion that you and other clinicians demonstrated. Uh, particularly since such compassion wasn't always so easy to find in the public domain of that time. And I'm also noticing some resonant tie-ins to this moment, not only COVID-19, but even the rates of stress and burnout in the industry generally right now. It's a norm. Phrases like drinking from a fire hose, fake it till you make it, I'm just a black cloud. These concepts run rapid. And, and I'm talking pre-COVID. I mean, they, they're normalized. Research before COVID showed that 60% of all healthcare workers in a normal environment were stressed. And, and many times that would lead to burnout. Bill, I certainly hear some of the phrases that you mentioned um, being normalized in the healthcare environments that I visit as well. So simple Next question, but I'm sure a very complex answer. As you think about the level of stress and the normalization of stress in healthcare that you mentioned, how do you fight it? There are both environmental and personal aspects, factors to dealing with burnout. And in the environmental, I'm really talking about the efficiency in a medical practice, uh, the work milieu and such. But when it comes to the personal, how we must take care of ourselves, I can tell you that we're not trained very well in how to do that. We meaning physicians aren't trained very well, clinicians? Physicians particularly in their training are perhaps less prepared than some of our nursing colleagues who work a little bit more in teams than solo. 
So maybe that's just a personal observation. I don't know if research holds that true, but I would suggest that all healthcare workers are always giving to others, mm-hmm. and a lot of times they're the last one they give to. So let's focus today on this idea of taking care of ourselves. Even that has so many facets to it. There's diet, exercise, meditation. In your experience, where would you advise that a leader start? Well, I would say you have to start by noticing your own stress. And you have to notice how you act and behave when you're stressed out. I'm struck by the word you chose there. You have to notice. What do you mean by that? The tricky thing is that in a stress response, we have a couple types of response. Physiologically, when the amygdala is seeing stress, it triggers stress hormones. And those hormones immediately give you a fast heart rate and rapid breathing and sweaty palms and flushed skin. But at the same time, what I think is important about noticing is your cognitive response to stress. This too is instinctual. It's very reflexive. It's very fast. And it's not likely that you're going to notice it because it actually doesn't even hit your prefrontal cortex. It's reflexive. Instinct takes over. And instinct takes over. Yet again, we hear this theme. In times of crisis, beware our unexamined instinct. When our amygdala hijacks our rational brain, we're prone to fear-based responses. Some of us freeze. Some of us flee. Some of us fight. I'll reiterate here the advice we've provided in our leadership series to date. To put your logical brain back in charge, label how you're feeling. In the language Bill used in our conversation, notice. And then ask yourself, why am I here? What am I doing? Why am I doing it? Bill talked about this as finding your purpose. What these things allow you to do is move from reaction, that is, unexamined instinct, to response. Bill, let's turn back to you. In addition to noticing your stress response, you just talked about noticing your cognitive process. By that, do you mean how we cope with stress? Yeah. Leaders have many different coping mechanisms, and and unfortunately, some are actually maladaptive. Uh, They might be what we call blind spots. So when you have a cognitive response to stress, that's a reflex, that's a blind spot. And to that extent that, you know, we need to be more aware of it. Otherwise, people just see it as who we are, and they don't know (laughs) that we're necessarily stressed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bill, as you talk about blind spots, I'm reminded of a close friend of mine. She was getting really worked up about something, and I casually said to her, you're doing that thing where you get all wound up, and she screamed at me, that's just who I am, Craig. Uh, She did not take well to my, uh, let's say, noticing her maladaptive coping mechanism very kindly, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we leadership facilitators have a career. We're often better positioned than friends, colleagues, and loved ones to help people see the things they need to see. All right. I'm going to have to hire you to consult in some of my friendships, Bill. (laughs) But walk me through it. When you are, are indeed helping others better understand maladaptive coping mechanisms, to which they might be blind. 
what are you helping them see? Well, our research suggests four different categories of maladaptive stress reactions. Um, There's the complainer. There's the procrastinator, there's the warrior, and the fourth, the self-doubter. Okay. Um, this sounds really fun, Bill. <laughs> Help me understand each one of these types. <laughs> well, let's take the complainer. He or she, when they're stressed out, are really quick to fire off uh, a text, an email, maybe leave you that choice voicemail, maybe like your friend did. And then there's the procrastinator. Their stress response might to just watch more of Tiger King rather than working through the situation. Bill, Maladaptive responses. <laughs> I cannot possibly fathom Tiger King as a stress-reducing experience. <laughs> okay. So you said there were four, complainer, procrastinator. Tell us about the other two. The other two is the worrier. And I have to admit, my wife, God love her, when she's stressed out, I've come to realize that she'll start to obsess on something. And the newsletter she wanted to get out in October was delivered in April. And so the warrior will put perfection uh, in the way of the good. And then there's the self-doubter, which is different. They're concerned that the response they gave uh, wasn't the right one. Four different maladaptive responses that really a leader needs to be self-aware of and will help him or her with others. So, Bill, in you talking about those four types, I'm getting the sense, to be simple about it, not everyone stresses the same way. Exactly. Which one are you? (laughs) Well, Craig, I am a little ashamed to admit this, but I'm definitely in the minority. 20% of us respond as a complainer. Give me an example of some of your uh, whiny tendencies. Well, um, you've known over the last year a number of IT challenges. (laughs) I think you probably could add up the text messages that I would send you in the middle of the night. Yeah, as I uh, look over those text messages, Bill, they're about 80% moaning and groaning. So good self-awareness here. Uh, You know me pretty well. Which one do you think I am? I suspect you may be a worrier. Someone that really wants perfect to get in the way of the good. I guess my perfectionism is more obvious than it seems. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've had a real breakthrough here, Bill. (laughs) So now that we have this (laughs) self-awareness, let's talk about how we can use these insights to our benefit. (laughs) In all seriousness, uh, for those listening, uh, why? Why understand the maladaptive coping mechanisms uh, to which we're the most prone? Why is that an important part of resilience? Well, as humans, we choose the path of least resistance. So in a sense, reflexes serve us. But when the reflexes of our maladaptive behaviors, like we just mentioned, um, the worrying, the avoiding, the self-doubting, the complaining, well, we need to move forward. Let, let me give you a medical metaphor. If physicians taking care of patients were only to focus on symptoms and not the disease, uh, that's the path of least resistance. So we really have to step it up and recognize that these maladaptive behaviors need to be not only noticed, but addressed. So let's relate that actually back to the personal example that you just used. Uh, You're a complainer. When you complain, 
what's happening there and why is that maybe not serving you well in the long term? I discovered I was a complainer about a year ago, and I've been around the block for a while. So this was a really important insight for me. So when I, in my head, before I open my mouth or type my text message, recognize a complaint is going on its way, I have learned to replace a maladaptive reflex to a positive reflex. Number one, take a deep breath, pause. Number two, it's not fair to shoot off a complaint if I don't add myself as co-responsible. And so I have taken what is a reflex to some extent of who I am, but by noticing the reflexive behavior, I now recognize I'm stressed and I now am substituting positive behaviors that work better for me. Jokes about complaining and obsessing aside, Bill's story here is telling. Indeed, as a leader, you can cope more consciously and thus more productively with stress. As Bill suggested, aim to develop awareness of your go-to coping strategy and then pick new actions that disarm some of those more maladaptive go-tos. Let's use the stress types that Bill mentioned to explore this a little further. If you're a complainer, like Bill, do things that give you a more objective view of your stressor. You might also want to try blame balancing. That is, identify a small action of your own that contributed to the problem. And check your language if you're a complainer. Be mindful about a tendency to hyperbolize. If you're a worrier, find ways to disengage from your stressor and take a break. Tiger King jokes aside here, find the thing that distracts you, gives you a good belly laugh, and pauses your perseverating. And then you might also try giving yourself some time limits. Commit to working on the thing that causes you stress for a fixed amount of time, and then move on to something else. If you're a procrastinator, lean into the stressor, gently. Chunk your situation down into more digestible pieces, or reward yourself after completing a segment of the work. And then if you're a self-doubter, try to show yourself some more compassion. Combat each piece of negative self-talk with something positive, and find someone to give you the proverbial second opinion. Usually someone else will see some things other than you that contributed to what's causing you stress. With any one of these stress responses, remember, you are not alone. Everyone suffers from stress responses that aren't always helpful. I'll never forget actress Viola Davis. The night she won her first Academy Award, told ABC News that she still suffered from self-doubt. She said, I still feel like I'm going to wake up and everybody's going to see me for the hack I am. Wow, here is a woman that has deservedly reached the pinnacle of an acting career, an Oscar, after she's already, by the way, won an Emmy and a Tony, saying that even she self-doubts. Once you give yourself the break of realizing that everyone must process their stress response, aim for personalized insight and action. Think about it here. The procrastinator's cure leaning into the stress, is the warrior's downfall. It's going to feel a little awkward at first. 
but keep at it. Most of the more productive coping mechanisms begin with what's called a micro-shift. A small thing you can change consistently and deliberately until it becomes a habit. So far in our conversation, we've been really personal about this. Um, We've spoken about how knowledge of our own reactions and coping mechanisms helps us be more resilient as an individual. And that kind of self-awareness is certainly essential to leadership, but I'd now like your insights on the leadership of others. How does this idea of more consciously managing our stress translate to team members? When you take the leadership role, you need to know the people that you lead. You need to hopefully understand their stress responses, and it can create a positive reciprocal effect. For example, if you're a worrier and you're obsessively wondering why somebody's not responding to an email request you sent, it may be helpful to consider that their stress response might be procrastination, avoidance. I see. So taking a moment to process your own stress tendency, as well as that of your colleague, will aid both of you. Let me make sure I understand the example you shared. If I, the warrior, know my colleague's tendency to procrastinate under stress, I'm a lot less likely to dwell on why my colleague hasn't responded, worried about if it's something I said, for instance. Do I have that right? Right. Perfect. And and this is a realization might also allow you to consider ways to diminish stress for your coworker. Oh, can you give an example of that? Well, you might in that original email have put too much in it. So you really might take that request into smaller pieces and it might be something that could be addressed by the self-doubter in, in, in a more reasonable way. So you could do that in the original design of the email, smaller pieces, Or you could actually follow up the email with a call that just says, hey, there was a lot in that email. How about we start talking about it? Hmm. Now I'd like to add a complicating layer. So, Bill, leaders at all functions are working in particular cultures. And so what do you suggest a leader do when the productive response to stress is countercultural in his or her organization? Um, I'll share with you an example from a group of physicians with whom I worked. They had gone through a stress analysis. Many of them had determined that as warriors, they needed to take breaks from their stressors, uh, one of the things you recommended earlier. And then they said to me, but Craig, this, referring to their institution, just isn't a place where you take breaks. You grind through. And that was such a telling moment because the right leadership behavior take a break from your stressor, was countercultural. That group of doctors didn't feel authorized to start that new habit in the particular culture in which they were functioning. And nothing was going to change until we broke that down. So how have you seen leaders start to break that down in your experience? That's a really great example, Craig. First thought is you, the leader who is looking to build a healthier environment, need to give permission for some new behaviors. One of those could be first that people sort of have a stress buddy. If two people are committed when they're stressed to have an accountable colleague, coworker, who's willing to take a break with them to be able to deal with the stress, the behavior, the response, that that is a whole new behavior. And it's not really different from people who exercise with a friend. 
Yeah, a lot more likely to do my morning run if I do it with a buddy, aren't I? Exactly. Exactly. And so that helps change culture. The other thing, which in healthcare, particularly for clinical leaders, we're afraid to ask for help a lot of times, particularly clinically, because we might reveal that we don't know. And and that's a strong culture everywhere I go. So, for example, in this case, you, the leader, may also build a permission that people, if they're stressed, have uh, – and not only the right, but an expectation to ask for help from their leader, from their boss, from their supervisor. Does that help? It does help a lot. And you know, as I hear you share these examples, Bill, I'm thinking that ultimately some of this just requires a moment of agency, doesn't it? A leader who's willing to say, I'm not a victim of the system or the culture, the way we do it here. I'm part of it, and my action can make a difference. And by the way, hey, boss, help me out. Exactly, Craig. Exactly. I mean, it it may not sound like a major cultural shift, but those two approaches together can really help build a healthier environment for uh, emotional as well as physical reaction to stress. Well, Bill, that's exactly um, what we hope healthcare leaders can do. It's been really wonderful to have some of your insights about stress today. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Craig. Appreciate it. In late 2019, the National Institutes of Medicine released a 312-page report, Taking Action Against Clinician Burnout, a Systems Approach to Professional Well-Being. This report found that as many as half of the country's doctors and nurses experience substantial symptoms of burnout, reiterating several studies that suggest similar prevalence. We definitely need, in healthcare, a resilience that's as core to our character as Sisu is to the Finns. There's also no doubt that fixing the larger problem requires systemic change, not just the self-care mechanisms that we talked about today. And that is really important. We don't fix this problem without the continued work of fixing the system, nationally, regionally, and locally, medically, legally, and financially. But self-care is important, as are leaders that model it, teach it, and create room for it. Today, Bill gave us some great advice on stress, rooted in his own experience as a clinician and his work consulting with health systems. Bill reiterated our previous guest's advice on crisis and uncertainty. Pause when under stress. Respond rather than react. And then, rooted in the idea that not everyone stresses the same way, Bill advised that we recognize our stress responses, including the maladaptive ones, and the importance of trying new habits that are targeted to our stress type. Ultimately, this is the stuff of building new habits. I know I left my telephone conversation with Bill convicted to make a conscious effort for the next few weeks to try out a new stress response tactic. I've given myself some reminders about it, a post-it note on my computer monitor and a colleague who has promised to help. We want to hear from you. What did today's episode stir up for you? Send us your questions and your feedback. You can reach us at podcasts at advisory.com. That's podcasts with an S. And I hope that you'll join us for the next edition of our radio advisory mini-series on leadership. Our topic next time, 
Empathy. Just sign up for the Radio Advisory podcast feed on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Thanks for joining us today, and remember, we're all in this together.